Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is Method and Madness, Justice for Katie Palmer. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. I left my soulmate back in that field. Okay? Um, she's not going to come back. There's nothing that we can do to have her come back. Recently, the family of Katie Palmer reached out to me on social media and asked if I'd be willing to cover her story in an upcoming episode. They're fighting for justice. Today, you'll be hearing from Katie's husband, John, who is a warrior in this fight. Now, this is a case that brings out a lot of emotions. It's heartbreaking, tragic, and unfair. It's also unjust and frustrating, and the more you find out about the case, it becomes downright infuriating. Many other podcasts are currently sharing Katie's story as well, and the more coverage it gets will hopefully get her family closer to some kind of justice. So please, listen, share, and spread the word. There's also information in the show notes on how you can help. You can join the Facebook group, Justice for Katie Palmer, there will be a call to action soon. Katie was a sister, a daughter, wife, and mother of two. She was a science teacher at Scott Middle School in Denison, Texas, and was passionate about everything she did. Here is her story. On Tuesday, April 21st, 2020, 39-year-old John Palmer and his wife, 38-year-old Katie Palmer, set out for a morning walk in their rural neighborhood in Denison, Texas. It was a sunny morning with temperatures in the mid-60s. The road they were walking is residential with homes and a country club, not a road that has any significant traffic early in the morning. There are no sidewalks, and the couple was walking facing the direction of oncoming traffic. At 7.45 a.m., as they walked alongside the asphalt road, they were hit from behind by their neighbor, Corey Foster, who was driving a 2019 Ford F-250 pickup truck. John and Katie didn't even hear the truck coming. They were both injured, Katie fatally. Katie passed away from her injuries the next day, just after midnight. John recovered and has spent every day since, not only grieving the loss of his soulmate, but waiting for and then fighting for justice. The man that killed his wife had alcohol in his system, was driving with a fogged-up windshield on the wrong side of the road, and walks free. I sat down with John Palmer in August. He's an incredible human being. Here he is talking about how he met Katie. Man, so, <clears throat> and I've told this story a couple times. Um, I moved into an apartment before my senior year um, off campus in, in college and had two roommates and Katie lived across the parking lot in another apartment building and we all hung out. And then um, Katie kept on coming over because she got locked out of her apartment. Uh, she kept on mysteriously getting locked out and she'd come over and we'd, we'd watch movies and hang out. And I um, guess I couldn't take a hint. And so um, I told her one night, you got to just leave a key here. And when you get locked out, uh, we'll just have this key and you can, uh, just go unlock your, your apartment. You don't have to sit here and wait for hours upon end for your roommate to come home. And she rolled her eyes and walked out. And um, one, of my room, one of my roommates was like, you do realize that she has her keys, right? I said, no. And said, well, you know, she's pretending to be locked out to come over here and spend time with you. So I finally figured that out. Uh, it was pretty dense. So um, we started to hang out. And one thing led to another and um, she was the one. And when you know, you absolutely know. And we fell in love. And um, 
I thought she was, I thought she was perfect. John and Katie married and had two children, Bella and Brandon, and were living in a home on Glenwood Drive in Denison, Texas. It was April 21st, 2020, just over a month into lockdown, and Katie wasn't scheduled to start teaching her virtual class just yet. Here's John talking about that fateful morning when he woke his wife up to see if she wanted to join him on his walk. Woke her up and said, hey, am I going to go walk? Do you want to go walk with me? And she said no. And I told her, uh, you know, you you said that you were going to go with me. And she said, okay. She got up and um, got ready. I went and told our youngest, uh, Brandon, that uh, his mom and I were going to go for a walk. And sometimes he would go with me in the morning. I'm glad he didn't. Um, Very glad he didn't that day. And uh, we didn't tell our oldest, Bella. Um, She liked to sleep late. And so we didn't want to wake her up, but um, Brandon would have been up anyway. So we left our driveway and um, started walking down Glenwood Drive right in front of our house. Uh, It's a road that we live on and we were heading west. So we're walking alongside the road, heading west, and we would usually go to, there's an old golf course that we'd go walk on the cart trails. You know, they were paved. So um, we got to the golf course and there was dew on the ground. Katie didn't want to get her feet and uh, legs wet uh, because, again, she's probably going to go back to sleep. So we decided to keep on walking down Glenwood, and there was some undeveloped lots where they were going to build houses. And there were killdeer on these lots. And Katie, in college, studied ornithology and developed this love for birds. And she loved killdeer. Um, she thought they were so cool because, again, it's a bird that nested on the ground. And any time a predator would come up to a killdeer, um, one of the parents would, uh, you know, if there, if there were eggs or if there were hatchlings in their nest, would fake an injury and, dra- and you know, kind of drag the predator away uh, from where the eggs or the hatchlings were. And she thought that was so cool that the parent would, you know, sacrifice itself um, basically for, you know, their, their kids. So we looked over those lots. She didn't see any. And we decided to turn back around. And uh, so then we were headed east on Glenwood back to our house. And right about where we turned around is where um, Corey Foster's house, house was. And so we started walking back to our house and, you know, we're approximately, you know, around a, around a half a mile away. Um, Again, on the same road, Glenwood drive is about, you know, half a mile, six tenths of of a mile, a country road, you know, asphalt paved and it's a dead end road. We started to walk back. Again, headed east on Glenwood, um, facing any oncoming traffic, walking alongside the roadway. And that's when Corey Foster crossed over the roadway as we were about two-tenths of a mile away from our house. Um, He crossed over the roadway and hit us both from behind. Um, He hit us so hard, he knocked us out of our shoes. Hit us about 70 feet into the golf course and um, never heard his truck. Never heard it. Um, I remember flying through the air and seeing Foster's truck out of my peripheral vision. And I landed, I I hit the ground and rolled and immediately knew that I was hit by, by truck. I I was hit by something. Um, felt like I had a ratchet around my mid midsection, um, kind of getting hard, hard to breathe. And I looked over and that's when I saw Katie and Katie was propped up on her left elbow and she was looking in my direction, but looking over me. 
And um, she let out this moan. And the moan had a lot of pain in it. And it was um, very unsettling. And I tried to get up to go walk over to her, and I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't get up. So I had to crawl over to her on my hands and knees. And at the same time, I'm yelling for somebody to call the cops, somebody to call the police. Um, Corey Foster, by that time, had exited his truck and had said had said to me uh, something to the effect of, oh, my God, I didn't know it was you guys, John. I'm sorry. I couldn't see. I was trying to clear off my windshield. And um, I made it over to Katie. I laid her down on her back. She wasn't breathing. It's the first thing I noticed. And roughly about this time, a neighbor of ours had stopped, asked Corey what happened. He said he hit us. She got out of her vehicle, ran over, and um, sat right next to Katie. And um, she had a real calming voice, uh, stroking Katie's hair. And I was begging for Katie to breathe. And finally, uh, she let out this um, gasp for air. And that was a relief. It was a big relief because I thought, well, you know, at least she's breathing. Uh, Thank God. Um, So she was breathing about every, you know, 10 to 15 seconds. It was a short gasp for, for air. And then I noticed that she wasn't blinking. Um, She was staring straight up into the sky, not blinking and had these shallow gasps for air. About this time, I heard fire trucks. um, I heard the sirens and the um, firefighters and the, and the EMT seemed like they, they, they got there pretty quick. Um, You know, didn't, didn't seem like a, a long time, time at all. Definitely less than, 10 minutes from when we got, got hit. Um, I, I believe they showed up on, on scene and, um, started immediately to focus on, on Katie. I heard him talk about a helicopter. Um, they started to work on her. They asked me if I'd gotten hit. I said, yes, they got me loaded up on a gurney, um, put me in the back of an ambulance. And, um, so last time I saw Katie that day, um, I was driven to the ICU at TMC in Denison and Katie was flown by a medical evac helicopter to a trauma center in Plano, Texas, which is about 70 miles away. Um, and I was later told that day that, um, she wasn't going to make it. Corey Foster's truck had struck Katie in the back of the head. John had fractured some vertebrae in his back, broke multiple ribs, and suffered some internal bruising. Physically, I I I think I'm I'm doing fine, Um, but you know, again, emotionally, um, you know, every single day, um, and I mean this, Katie is the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about when I go to bed. Um, and I'm sure it's the same thing for my kids also. So we've, um, suffered a tremendous loss. Um, you know, we're always going to have a hole in our heart and, um, it's not something that we're going to get over, but, um, it's definitely something that we're going to get through. And we're going to do that with the support of our family and our community. Uh, both have been absolutely extraordinary to us. As if their tremendous loss wasn't enough, Katie's loved ones would soon find out the investigation at the scene was mishandled, followed by one blow after another. Highway Patrol Trooper Tarif al was the officer in charge at the scene, and his body cam footage shows everything he did that day and everything he didn't 
do. When Trooper Al-Khatib got to the scene, it was 8.15 a.m., approximately 30 minutes after John and Katie were hit. John was on a stretcher in an ambulance. He was conscious, talking, and was able to describe what had just happened. He told Trooper Al-Khatib that the man who hit them stopped, got out of his truck, and said he didn't see them walking. Katie was on a stretcher located in the field where she'd landed after being hit by the truck. She was being worked on by several EMS workers and was unconscious. After Trooper Al-Khatib checked in on John and then Katie, he approached Corey Foster, who was standing outside of his pickup truck. When requested, Foster provided Al-Khatib with his license, insurance, and they walked down the road to get away from the sound of the helicopter that had landed in the field to transport Katie to the trauma center. Foster explained what happened, blaming the incident on his windshield being foggy and the sun glare in his eyes. He said that he thought he hit a telephone pole. Trooper Al-Khatib asked Foster if he'd had anything to drink, and he says that he can smell alcohol on his breath. Corey Foster said that he had a couple of whiskeys the day before and stopped drinking around 6 or 7 p.m. He couldn't remember how many he'd had, but he guessed four or five over the course of the day. All he had had to eat that morning was an apple and some Nilla wafers around 7.30. Trooper Al-Khatib continued to question Foster about medications he's on, etc., and then takes him through a field sobriety test and then administers a portable breath test. Corey Foster blew a .06 and told the trooper that he may have stopped drinking at 8 or 9 or maybe 7 the night before. .06 is within the legal limit, but keep in mind that at least 30 minutes had passed since he hit the Palmers. According to clevelandclinic.org, a blood alcohol content of .05 you may feel uninhibited and have lowered alertness and impaired judgment. At 0.08, you may have reduced muscle coordination, find it more difficult to detect danger, and have impaired judgment and reasoning. Trooper Al-Khatib then called his supervisor and said that Corey Foster passed the field sobriety test and that he blew a 0.06 and that alcohol could be smelled on him. And Al-Khatib said, I know of Corey Foster. At his supervisor's instruction to take the truck into evidence, Al-Khatib tells Corey Foster they're taking the truck in and then lets him remove things from the vehicle. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> she can be out here. I don't care. I just didn't want her running well, up here. Well, I just didn't know how long I'd be here. No, not that. We'll, we'll be able to cut you loose. Yeah, I've just got some bills. How, do, how long do you think you'll we'll have it? I'm hoping not more than just a couple. It, it could be even later this evening. Oh, okay. I just got to, uh, okay. hey, what's in that uh, that cup right there? Water. Okay. Yeah. That's all I ever put in it, water. Yeah, it's all right. We just got to check, you know. I don't think there's anything No. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to inventory everything that's in there that you don't want to get out. It's all going to be listed down in our inventory. Okay. Uh, Texoma there, Auto Care is who we're going to have get there. it. Let's get those pistols out. Okay. Yeah, let's get those out for sure. You want to do it or you want to? No, no. You can get them. Are they loaded? Yes. Huh. Wouldn't do any good with that. Yeah. Trooper Al-Khatib let Foster take a cup of liquid, some papers, and loaded guns out of the truck. On the phone with the supervisor again, Trooper Al-Khatib sounds like he's excusing Corey Foster's reckless driving by blaming the sun glare. He just said, I, I could not see at all. He's like, I, I really couldn't. He goes, I, I probably should have just stopped. But, but see, he comes over this hill about probably... 200 feet or so to the west and when he comes over that hill boom then the sun's really in his eyes and that's about where they were 
After Trooper Al-Khatib gets off the phone, he kindly offers to drive Corey Foster home. But there was some body cam footage that wasn't initially provided. The additional footage came out later. What you're about to hear was recorded at the scene on April 21, 2020, after Katie and John had been transported to the trauma center and hospital, respectively, and as the officers were finishing up. This confirms that Tarif Al-Khatib knows Corey Foster. You'll also hear the officers joking about Katie's belongings that were collected from the field and placed in a bag. Yeah, dude, you fucking... They knocked the shit out of her, dude. Because she was laying over there. I what side of the road were they on? That side or the other side? He said, we were, he goes, we were going this way on this side of the road, and he just bowed from behind us. His driveway's right there where you can see that rock road coming onto the... But he's got a big-ass house. What is, what's he do? He works he for said medical. sells medical equipment. There's a whole bunch of notepads in there for where it yeah. works. Hey, I'm going to warn you. I think she showered and... Uh, body spray this morning because that damn bag is just out. Oh, really? So you might want to put it in the very back or something. So they're all neighbors though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just moved out here like the But right when I walked, come up and I saw it was him, I was like, yeah, he's probably drunk. He said the same thing. He said that, he's always he just, that dude's always drunk. Hey, what time do you want to put down on the, on the wheel? Did the crash happen? Yeah. I don't know yet. I Let's see what time they call me. He called me at 7.55, so I'm going to say it happened at 7.45. Yeah, I guess the reason why I knew about it is Jim Bob had her, Jim Bob had dispatch call for a CV unit coming out here. I said, is it a big truck? He's like, no. He's like, well, Jim Bob said there may be a lot of people that show up. Uh, I think he was expecting it to be a confirmed fatal. And well, they told me it was. They told me two were dead. That's what they told me, too. Oh, yeah. On the phone. That's what Courtney told me. Why do they always say that? She felt something much alive, right? Right. The most alive? Yeah, but she was unconscious from the time she got hit until even when I got here, she was still yeah. unconscious. Yeah, and they said her pupils were non-reactive, so she definitely she, got hit injury. Oh, yeah, she whacked her head. He, Dude, I smell shoes though too when I sweaty shoes. Hey, what about him? <laughs> but he was okay. He's like he was in a lot of pain. He's like, fuck my right side, my right side. And you can see some road rash and like, you know, marks on him. So she but was on this side of the road. I think she was she probably was to the middle. She had to be probably. And he was on the outside. I'm with Cassie. I'm always, I'm always on the outside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am. She wants that life insurance money. <laughs> what? What you she wants that life insurance. At the very end of that footage, the officers are heard joking about how fast Corey Foster was going. I didn't include that here because there's a tow truck loading up the F-250 and there's a lot of background noise. There's also some discussion on how big Corey Foster's house is. The case against Corey Foster was brought to a grand jury that refused to indict him despite body cam footage that shows he had been drinking, driving recklessly, and that the responding officer was at the very least an acquaintance of his. Here's John again, talking about what he expected to occur at the scene and what actually has occurred in the 27 months since his wife was killed. My expectation, my expectation was that DPS was going to do their job. Uh, my expectation is that was that um, we had a district attorney's office that uh, actually gave a damn, and we hadn't either. Uh, the first time I saw, well, so I, I spoke to Tarif Al-Khatib um, a couple times uh, between the 21st of April and um, when we had the grand jury. And I asked him if he got a blood test on Corey, and he told me he didn't. Um, but I should be happy because he PBT'd him at a 0.06, and had he had gotten a blood test, 
that number would have gone down because, you know, more time would have passed. Um, I was very naive. Um, I had never had any run-ins with the law. Um, didn't know that a PBT was inadmissible in a criminal court. I do now. Um, didn't know that a blood test, regardless of when they take that blood test, would have created a baseline for the blood alcohol concentration in Corey Foster's blood. And they could have, um, a toxicologist could have determined uh, where he was at when he hit Katie and I. Um, all of this I, I didn't know at the time. Um, but again, I know now. Um, my, my expectation again was that Tarif Al-Khatib was going to do his job and he looked like he went out of his way to do everything but his job. Um, he did mark the scene, which I've been told by many current state highway patrol troopers that, um, Again, that's that's what they do. You know, when there's an accident, when there's an incident, when there's a wreck, when there's a collision, uh, DPS is there to gather the evidence. Um, he did not mark the scene. He did not talk to any neighbors that had heard the collision, had been on scene prior to any um, EMTs arriving. Um didn't take adequate pictures. In fact, our family had to provide the DA's office with pictures that Katie's aunt took the day after. And they asked for those because they didn't have sufficient photographs to go off of. Um, because again, Trey Falcati and DPS did not do their job that day, nor did DPS recreate the crash, which is odd. Um, again, that's what they do, uh, but they decided not to. Tarif should have also driven Corey to the hospital instead of to his house. Um, Tarif very quickly uh, badgered Corey and uh, turned his body camera off and gave Corey Foster a ride home with his two loaded handguns instead of to the hospital for a blood test. Uh, Corey Foster hit and killed my wife and hit me and put me in the ICU. And 50 minutes after doing that, blew a .06 in a PBT and smelled strongly of alcohol. There has not been one officer that I've spoke to that said that uh, they would have done the same thing by not getting a blood test. Um, another officer on scene even asked Tarif, are you going to get blood? And Tarif declined. Um, I thought DPS would have been impartial and fair. And instead, Tarif Al-Khatib did his buddy a solid and basically gave him a get out of jail free card that day. The anger that I had not only after watching what I saw on Tarif's body camera and how he uh, refused to do his job, um, how the other officers spoke as my wife is being flown out uh, to the trauma center in Plano and I'm being driven to TMC. Um, I don't believe there's a proper word to tell you how angry I was at hearing that. Then making jokes about how much body spray Katie used that, that morning. Um, talking about, you know, again, joking about how fast Corey Foster was going that morning. Um, they laughed about, you know, Corey told him that he was going 15 miles per hour. And the officer started laughing and they said, more like 50. Uh, one officer joked about, um, you know, his wife always made him walk on the other on the closest side to the road because if he were to get hit, she wanted to get that insurance money. Um, joking about us being neighbors, carrying on about how big Corey's house was. 
being enamored with his wealth. Um, instead of investigating what happened, they treated it like they were just friends at the local bar, catching up. Uh, they didn't do their job. And what really sent me over the edge and what made me lose a lot of respect for these officers and our local DPS. I was in the hospital. Again, I was in the ICU and um, I had no clue who had my kids, what my kids were doing. Um, if anybody had gone to the house, if anybody had gotten a hold of Katie's mom who lived the next street over, had no clue. So I kept on asking the officer. Um, that was on duty at the ICU. If anybody could please just check on my kids. And that officer was fantastic. It was a Denison police officer. Fantastic. Um, he got the call out to his dispatch. Grayson County Sheriff's Office uh, reached out to DPS. And um, through body camera footage, I saw that they contacted Jack Hill. Jack Hill was one of the officers on scene with uh, Tree Alcati. And they said, this husband is in ICU. He's worried about his kids. Can you go do a welfare check? And he said, yeah, I think Tarif Al-Khatib, again, who is the investigating officer, was the officer in charge of that scene. I believe Tarif is close by. Um, he radioed Tarif to see if he would go check on my kids. And Tarif's response was, he was very reluctant to do it and said um, they probably won't even come to the fucking door. That's that's DPS here in Grayson County. Um, angered and disappointed um, at the lack of respect and professionalism that was demonstrated by all those officers on scene that day. They, it's so cold and callous. It's like they treated it like it was a fender bender. That's it. Um, <laughs> and they knew exactly how serious of the situation it was. You know, there, there was, you know, again, Tarif was, well, D, DPS, uh, they, they were the last first responders on, on scene. Um, fire department was, was there. EMTs were there. And again, the evac helicopter came all the way from South Sherman, beat Tarif to the scene. Tarif comes up as that helicopter is landing. Um, we got hit at approximately 7.45. I believe Tarif got called at 7.55 and um, casually showed up at 8.15. And Tarif was at his house, which is you know, probably less than 10 miles from my house. He, he wasn't in Sherman. He wasn't at his office. He was still at his house. So, I mean, I guess he had to get ready, put his clothes on and show up um, and was very unprepared uh, for what he was about to encounter. Uh, and I believe you can believe you can see that through, through his actions. Um, they, they, they treated everything so cavalier um, and just so, so casual, but going back, they absolutely knew uh, the severity of her injuries um, just because there was a medical evac helicopter on scene. Uh, one of the EMTs told one of the other officers on scene that when asked how she was doing, um, her pupils are dilated, you know, uh, she's non-responsive and she is in a world of hurt. That's what they told DPS. And um, Tarif relayed Katie's condition to his supervisor on the phone by stating she just whacked her head real good. That's it. That's it. Downplaying what happened to his supervisors. When watching the footage from Trooper Al-Khatib's body cam, one moment in particular was shocking. As he is allowing Corey Foster to clean out his truck before it's taken in for evidence collecting, Corey removes a drinking cup. Trooper Al-Khatib allows him to do so, but asks him what's in it. 
to which Corey responds, water. I asked John if anyone knows what was in that cup. No one knows. No one knows. That that should have been tested. That should have been evidence also. Um, but again, um, I believe because of the close and personal relationship that the Al-Khatib family and the Foster family had, uh, you know, both wives working together, I believe, on multiple occasions, um, the pictures that we found um, of both families parting on Halloween together and Christmas together. And, you know, not just in a group photo, but basically Tarif Al-Khatib's wife almost sitting in Corey Foster's lap. You know, the wives got together before this party, got their makeup done together. And they all wore the same costumes. There was a very strong um, and familiar family relationship there, um, which allowed Al-Khatib to, as our district attorney put it, make missteps. Um, so Tarif should have probably taken that cup and what was in that cup and had that tested. Um, at one point in the video, he actually tells Corey he can get whatever he wants to out of his truck and turns his back for about 13, 14, 15 seconds. And you have no clue what Corey Foster is getting, putting into gloves, putting into his jacket, but he gets everything that he needs. Um, and, um, you know, again, uh, when asked if he had any loaded weapons or any weapons at all in his car, uh, Foster told Tarif, yes. And then Al-Khatib asked him if they were loaded and Corey made a joke, started laughing and said, well, they wouldn't do any good if they weren't. And everybody had a big old laugh. And then one thing that's very telling and tells you how familiar and how comfortable Tarif was with Corey. Tarif then directs Corey, who he knows has a strong presence of alcohol in his system, to retrieve those loaded handguns for him and hand them to him. Um, I don't know what officer would allow somebody who has alcohol in their system, who has committed a felony, to reach into their vehicle and get their loaded weapons and hand them to them. I don't know what officer would do that unless that officer was so familiar and so comfortable with this uh, suspect, with this man that just ran over um, a husband and wife that he knew that Corey was of no threat of, of no harm and um, asked that he again, reach into his vehicle and hand him both loaded handguns. If you didn't want your friend to um, go to jail, um, you, you wouldn't worry, worry about a cup. You wouldn't worry about somebody uh, reaching into their vehicle, pulling out two loaded handguns. You wouldn't worry about uh, any potential evidence in that truck of any drug use or, um, you know, anything that Corey could have been doing. Um, you, you wouldn't worry about that, that evidence being tampered or destroyed with when you tell them, Oh, Hey, go ahead and take anything you want to out of your truck and then turning your back. That's, that's crazy. I mean, I, I believe that whole, really, to be honest with you, that whole body cam should, should be shown and um, uh, to uh, recruits as what not to do. The crash report that Trooper Al-Khatib wrote has the following statement, quote, The driver, Corey Foster, had the odor of an alcoholic beverage coming from his breath when he was speaking to me. Foster admitted to drinking the night prior to the crash and said that he had nothing the day of. I performed field sobriety tests on Foster, which confirmed he was not intoxicated. It is in this investigator's opinion that alcohol may or may not have contributed to the crash, with the leading factors being impaired visibility and driving on the wrong side of the road. How does that make any sense? Let's just talk about that. You smell alcohol. You administer a portable breath test. The subject blows a .06, and you determine that the driver was not intoxicated at the time of the crash. As John Palmer said, Breathalyzer results are not admissible in court, so why didn't Trooper Al-Khatib 
bring Corey Foster to the hospital for a blood test. A blood test would have given a baseline and helped determine what level his blood alcohol content was at 7.45 a.m., but that blood test never happened. About two to two and a half weeks after he and Katie were hit, John Palmer called the Grayson County District Attorney's Office to speak with DA James Brett Smith, who goes by Brett Smith. John wanted to know what was going on with the case. At that point, Brett told John that he hadn't received the report from DPS yet, so he didn't know much about the case yet. A couple more weeks went by with no word, and so Katie's mom, Rhonda, found Brett's personal number on his Facebook page. Rhonda calls Brett on his cell phone, starts asking him about the case. Um, Brett gets angry at her for calling him on his cell phone, um, chastises her for calling a public official, um, and says he knows nothing about the case, hadn't heard about Katie's name, nothing, which contradicts what he told me where he had heard of the case, but just hadn't got, got the file yet. And then ends the call with Rhonda. Well, that's her daughter. I, I don't know what it would be like to lose a child. Um, and I hope I never do. But that's got to be a tremendous loss. And you call the one person that's supposed to be fighting for justice. And this person has... Um, brushed you aside, blown you off, and um, told you not to call him on his cell phone, okay? Do you think any of us really cared uh, if we bothered him on his cell phone? Absolutely not. That's his job. That's the job that he campaigned for. That's the job he wanted. Um, that's the job he ran for. And that at that point, that's the job that he was appointed to. Rhonda and other members of Katie's family then took to social media to share what was happening, and people were rightfully angry and began flooding the DA's office with phone calls. Brett Smith then called John Palmer, who thought the DA was calling to say, hey, I reviewed the case file, here's what's going on. But no, the DA was calling Katie Palmer's widower to say that the social media posts were making him look bad. A week later, another call from Brett Smith to John went the same way. John even apologized, assuming that the DA was going to be fighting for Katie. And then it was June 2020. Four members of the family, John Palmer, Katie's mother Rhonda, Katie's father Tony, and Katie's brother Logan, met with Brett Smith and two other prosecutors, Don Hoover and Laura Wheeler. John Palmer wanted to introduce the DA and the prosecutors to his wife, so he brought photos. He wanted Katie to be more than a name on a piece of paper, so he brought pictures of his bride on her wedding day, pictures of Katie with their two children, pictures with her mom and dad, her brother. It appeared that the two prosecutors were receptive, connecting with the family. But the DA, on the other hand... Brett Smith was over in the corner of the room with his arms folded, leaning against the wall, uh, said he didn't want to see those pictures. He's seen everything he needed to see on Facebook. I've already seen them. I don't want to look at them. And um, I told him that then he just he's going to have to wait. I'm going to uh, finish introducing Katie. And then uh, I guess we'll go go from there. So when I got done, uh, Brett started to speak and immediately turned on Rhonda. and again, spoke about social media and Facebook and how unfair that he's been treated uh, about this and that he's never seen anything like this before and we should not treat him the way that we've been treating him. Um, then he told Rhonda to call off her jihad. So you, you've got a mother, a father, a brother, and a victim and a widower all sitting at this table. And I, I think he thought it was going to be a joke. He laughed. Nobody else did. Um, 
that was Brett Smith. He ended the meeting with, we're going to look into this and we'll give you a call. John then met with First Assistant District Attorney Carrie Ashmore prior to the grand jury hearing because someone needed to provide info about the scene since DPS hadn't collected the information necessary. So John had to show him where in the field they'd landed, etc. The third party that had been hired to recreate the crash was at a disadvantage because of the lack of information DPS collected. DA Brett Smith acknowledged that Trooper Al-Khatib made missteps and should have had a blood test done on Corey Foster. Additionally, he had to rewrite the crash scene report because it wasn't written properly the first time. On August 19th, the case went to the grand jury, which in Texas consists of 12 people. But this grand jury had 10 people show up. Carrie Ashmore didn't know where the other two people were, and Ashmore's wife, the district clerk, didn't seem to know either, and there were no alternates scheduled for that day. Now, nine people have to vote to move the case forward, so nine out of ten would have to agree that Corey Foster should be indicted. John Palmer testified, Trooper Al-Khatib testified, and a consultant from the third-party crash investigation team testified. Despite being assured by Brett Smith and Carrie Ashmore that they would subpoena Corey Foster's cell phone records, John learned that they'd never done that. Additionally, just to add another blow, the third-party crash report wasn't even finalized until six days after the grand jury heard the case. John wanted to know, why would the case go to the grand jury if that report wasn't even finalized? There was three hours of testimony, one hour of deliberation, and the grand jury declined to indict Corey Foster for manslaughter that day. Kerry Ashmore did not properly prepare for this grand jury. I don't think he cared. Um, he put on a long dog and pony show. Just, again, check a box, go go through the motions, because you and I both know, Don, that um, if a prosecutor wants an indictment, the prosecutor gets an indictment. Prosecutor can ask the grand jury, you need to indict this, okay? Um, that didn't happen. 18 months later, John received Corey Foster's cell phone records. Those records showed that Corey Foster had made a call to a 903 number 31 seconds before calling 911. John put together a timeline the only plausible timeline based on where Corey lived and how long it would have taken him to drive from his house to the point where he hit John and Katie. Based on the phone records and the time that Corey hit John and Katie, the call had been activated at the time that Corey Foster was crossing over to the wrong side of the road. The 903 call was disconnected two seconds before Corey dialed 911. He must have been manually dialing the 903 number when his truck crossed the roadway. Now, the call connected, and he was out of the truck at John's side in seconds. The call dialed for 29 seconds, so it seemed that Corey looked down at his phone, ended that call, and two seconds later, dialed 911. John was later informed that Carrie Ashmore was going to present the cell phone records to a brand-new grand jury— one that wasn't familiar with the entire case. So John asked to testify. He asked that the case be presented to a new grand jury only if the entire case was to be presented and that Ashmore should meet with John and Katie's family before presenting anything. And John did everything he could to make this happen, but calls weren't returned. And turned out, Carrie Ashmore had presented the evidence without meeting with the family beforehand. Why would you not meet with us? He put that on Brett. He said, well, it's, you know, Brett's, Brett's call. Um, why wouldn't you meet with us? What was presented? We questioned him um, as he should have been questioned, but this man is not used to answering anybody's questions. Uh, this guy's got a God complex mm -hmm. and their egos in, in play. And 
he had an air about him that was basically, how dare you question me? And ended our exchange by looking at Rhonda and telling her he didn't have to explain himself and he was damn good at his job. Walked out. 20, 30 minutes later, Carrie Ashmore comes back and says a grand jury declined to move forward. And um, I absolutely let out 18 months of frustration on Carrie, um, so much so that it emptied out the sheriff's office. Um, all the sheriff's deputies came out. I was furious. And um, huh. let's just say that everything that I told Carrie Ashmore that day that probably shouldn't re repeat here, um, I meant I meant every damn word. Um, this is the second time that through this man's incompetence that he failed our family. It's the second time under the leadership of Brett Smith that the DA's office failed our family. There is no justice at all. And um, that's why we continue to fight. And that's why we will continue to fight. And the injustice doesn't end there. During the same week of that first grand jury, Carrie Ashmore and Prosecutor Nathan Young had a pool party at Carrie Ashmore's house. Photos posted on social media show that one of the impaneled grand jurors was in attendance. The justice system, you want it to appear beyond reproach. You want there to be impartiality. That's what you want to see. You know, again, um, it's it's Lady Justice holding the you know the the scale with the blind blindfold on. You want everything to be impartial. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that having an impaneled granger at your house, drinking beer, eating burgers, uh, while they're still serving on a grand jury, do you think that's impartial? Do you think that somebody going up in front of a a grand jury? Um, or a case is being present, presented to them, presented against them to a grand jury. Um, how, how would you feel if the prosecutors are partying with these people that are going to decide if this case moves forward or not? You know, these, these prosecutors, my God, um, they hold people accountable every single day and they take the most important thing from us. That's time, you know, 18 months, five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, okay? I want there to be no doubt that what was presented and who it was presented to was above board. I want everything to be impartial. And seeing that picture, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I told one of Katie's brothers that uh, I don't think that we're ever going to get the justice that we want, um, which is Corey Foster in a criminal courtroom. That would be justice for us. Um, and notice I didn't say a conviction in prison. Um, I want him in a criminal courtroom. I want it where everything's public and I want him to have to be held accountable for killing Katie Palmer, for killing somebody who did something always the right way. Okay. That's justice. And I told him, I don't think we're ever going to get that because of the people that we have in power who are elected officials, the statute of limitations, um, which on, you know, charge for criminal negligent homicide is up, um, next April. And, um, I'm very optimistic about everything, but just with the way that how with, with the way that everything has played out, um, it's very easy to turn into a glass half empty kind of person rather than a glass half full. But I told him again, I don't believe that we're going to get the justice we seek, and but I do believe we'll get justice. We just won't see it. So the justice we want will be the justice that we don't see. And he just looked at me and said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we're going to fight so hard. And we're going to raise so much awareness and calls for accountability that the next time this happens, which unfortunately it will, you know, it, this something like this will happen. There will be um, 
somebody will get hit by a car. There'll, there'll be a wreck. Um, there will be something that another family has to endure much like our, our family. And I hate that. And I wish I could stop it, but we, we, we can't, but we're holding DPS accountable. We're holding Brett Smith and his office accountable. So the next time um, a bad actor like Tariq Al-Khatib is on, on scene, um, they're going to think twice before they give their buddy a break. They're going to think twice before they mail it in that day. They're going to think twice before they're completely complacent on scene, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, they're going to give a damn, and they're going to try, and they're going to not just check a box, uh, but they're going to do their damn job. Same thing with Brett Smith um, or any other DA. Uh, they're, they're going to see how Brett handled himself, how Brett spoke to our family, how Brett didn't do his job, didn't get the cell phone records, didn't wait for a report, um, didn't make sure Carrie Ashmore was properly prepared. Um, and they're going to handle everything different and not put another family through what we've gone through. That's going to be the justice that we'll get and the justice that we won't see. Um, as frustrating and as heartbreaking as that is to me, because again, you know, uh, I left my soulmate back in that field. Okay. Um, she's not going to come back. There's nothing that we can do to have her come back. But if we can create positive change um, through our eyes, uh, because change is not always positive in some somebody else's eyes, um, but if we can create positive change and, again, fight for future families to where this does not hap happen again, um, and that's the justice that, that we get out of that, um, I'm fine with that. And I think Katie would be fine with that also. Here is a call to action and how you, the listener, can help get justice for Katie Palmer. We have a Facebook group page, Justice for Katie Palmer. Uh, if it's okay to mention that on, on this pod, podcast, I just want to ask your per, permission first. Um, I'd love for people to join us on that page, stand with us, join our fight. Uh, we're going to have a call to action very soon. Um, we're waiting for some more information to come out from another uh, state of Texas entity, at which point we're going to have a call to action. Um, support us when that call to action is put out on our, our page. Please help us. Um, Again, we're going to fight for justice, and we're, we're going to fight for change. And um, change will happen, you know, especially here in Grayson County. There isn't anything that I wouldn't do for her. And um, I know if our roles had been reversed, um, I know she'd be fighting like hell too. So um I I I owe that to her. And um you know it 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 kills me because Brett Smith has a wife. Carrie Ashmore has a wife. Tree Falcatib has a wife. Um these men would fight for their wives. Um, Katie could have been their wife. Katie could have been their mom, sister, their cousin, a close friend. And um, they would fight for them, yet they choose to ignore Katie. And just it's, it's nonsensical. Um, what's, what's gone, gone on and the continued, um, 
lack of justice. And I've said it once, I've said it a million times, an injustice against one of us is an injustice against all of us because what happens to me can happen to you. That's why we can't let it stand. And that's why I'm not going to let it stand. And I'm so appreciative <clears throat> for all of the support that that we've had. And again, um, thank you so much for allowing me to come on. I'm so appreciative of every single podcast that has us that has us on that lets us tell her story. The more we tell her story, the harder it is for um, DPS and our district attorney's office to keep on turning a blind eye to what's happened. Um, the more we tell it, the more we tell it, the more of a chance there, 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 there is, um, for, for change. And again, being as optimistic as possible, um, there's a chance that, you know, we just will get justice for Katie Palmer two and a half years, years later. And um, I'm sure this hell not going to stop. To stay updated on Katie's story, please join the Facebook group Justice for Katie Palmer. Thank you to John Palmer for coming on, being an open book and for your fight for Katie. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.